The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. How exciting. Been praying. We went through the book of 1 Corinthians. Those of you who haven't been with us, uh, I've already met some visitors today. It's always a blessing to meet new people and visitors, and we just, uh, we're thankful that you're here with us today. Um, I'm Pastor Cliff, one of the elders here in uh, the pastor teacher, and this is our time of corporate worship together. We like to go through books of the New Testament uh, in order, the whole book, the way that the original uh, writers wrote them and intended them to be read by the church and Christians. That's why we go through the whole book. So we spent a good year and a half uh, or more actually going through the book of First Corinthians, 16 chapters. It was very beneficial. Uh, and now been praying for a while about what do we do next. And so I'm excited to go through the book of Acts. So that's what we're going to start today. Today's an introduction to the book of Acts, and then part of that is the first three verses we'll look at. So that's where we'll be. I also put an outline on the back of your bulletin if you find that helpful as we go through. Uh, before we get to that, just a reminder about these men's discipleship groups signing back on the table. Before doing book of Acts, we did that series on back to the base for Christians and the church. Actually, can I get my volume down just a little bit, I think? Um, and one of the discipleship lessons, or one of the sermons we did was discipleship, and I started out with the basic questions, who's discipling you and who are you discipling? But that is fundamental to the Christian life in the church. We're going to see that in the book of Acts. That's really where it is modeled uh, most extensively so that'll be a great reminder as we see that. And so I ask you, if you're a Christian today, if you're a Christian man, two questions. Who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? If you don't have anybody, I'd say join one of those small groups. You will be blessed as a result. Well, with that, going now to the book of Acts. Let me just read the first three verses to kick off our introduction to the book of Acts. And before I read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, hold your finger there, and you can look at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1, because they go together. You have the Gospel of Luke, which was written in about 60 A.D., and right after that, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and they're intended to go together. So there's Luke, and then Acts is really Luke volume 2. So the book of Acts is a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Luke's even writing to the same audience. or actually a specific gentleman he's addressing as well as the early church. So I'll read Luke chapter 1, just the first couple of verses, and notice who this fellow is that Luke is writing to. In verse 3, we'll see that in Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Luke says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, He's saying there have been other Christians who have written about Jesus and his ministry. And Luke's saying, I'm going to do the same thing. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning, that's the apostles and those who are with Jesus, uh, just as those like the apostles who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, the teaching of Jesus, have handed them down to us. So Luke's not an eyewitness. He got information about Jesus from the apostles who were still alive, some of them, when Luke was writing. who have handed this information down to us, other believers. Verse 3, as a result, it seemed fitting, 
were appropriate for me as well. Having investigated everything carefully regarding Jesus from the beginning of Jesus's ministry to now write it out for you in consecutive order or logically and systematically and carefully is what it means. Most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is writing to this gentleman named Theophilus. He has the name God in his name, Theo, Theos. So God is in his name. Phileo, love, beloved of God. We don't know much about this Theophilus fellow. We do know that he was most excellent. Most excellent. Which actually means he was probably in the upper stratosphere of society. Maybe a dignitary. Could very well be a, a Roman Gentile for all we know. That would be all be consistent with that kind of a name and that kind of address. So maybe he was an influential person there in the Palestine area, influential in uh, the Roman world. And so Luke apparently befriended him, got to know him, and now is writing out, can you imagine the entire gospel story for Theophilus? Introducing him to Jesus and his birth, his three and a half years of ministry, his death and resurrection, uh, his commissioning of the disciples, his ascension. And so that's what he lays out for Theophilus there. And then he continues. So he finished that book and then he starts volume two. Luke is a historian. And in the case of Luke and Acts, Luke is uh, not just a historian. He's a historian being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God so that what he wrote down was exactly what God wanted. It was perfect and without error. So the, the byproduct was inspired scripture. That's why Luke and Acts is in the Bible. It's inspired scripture. And God used the Holy Spirit uh, using Luke as a vessel to communicate these truths. So now let's go to volume 2 of Luke, which we call Acts. And he picks up volume 2 and he says this, again to this Theophilus fellow. We don't know if he's uh, a believer. We don't know if he's uh, just interested in the faith. And Luke's trying to give him more information. But he continues, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I'll read that. The first account I composed, Theophilus, the, the gospel of Luke. Now Luke's writing a year or two later. Theophilus, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he's writing again to Theophilus. So we're going to come back to those three verses in a sec, but I do want to do an overview of the book of Acts, kind of a survey, because that puts everything in context and so that when we go through all 28 chapters, uh, we'll have a better understanding, assimilating and taking in Luke's very long historical account. So if you want to go ahead and look at your outline there, we'll go ahead and uh, do the first four here to orient us about this wonderful, wonderful book. By the way, I don't think I'm going to spend two years in the book of Acts like I did with Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, because number one, it's totally different kind of literature. The book of Corinthians by Paul is, uh, it's not narrative, it's not story, it's not prose, it's uh, theology, um, it's an epistle, uh, sometimes you have to just stop and reflect on one sentence and explain it. 
uh, the way it's written. So this is a totally different kind of style. Luke is a historian for the most part. And so he's telling stories very similar to the Gospels. And so you can theoretically, theoretically go through rather quickly, theoretically. That would be my intent and desire. Who knows what's going to happen? But we might have to stop and pause. At certain but there are, uh, so it goes pretty quickly and pretty smooth and um, so that's exciting. So we will probably cover a lot of ground. There are some stories you just can't break up because there's no way to outline it and dissect it. You would do disservice to it because it's just a story. little vignette about history and what Paul did. So that's going to be kind of fun. Um, so maybe we'll get done in less than two years. We'll see. But let's go ahead and look at, uh, by way of introduction, point number one, who is the author of this book? If you read all 28 chapters, you would find that uh, Luke never says, Hi, I'm Luke, and I'm writing this book. Like we do today. You know, it's customary here for us Americans, and actually around the world, when you write a book and author it, you usually put your name on the front cover. Usually in big letters. A lot of authors, they like to put their picture and their bio on the back of their book. And some really bold authors, they put their picture on the front of the book. Like my, I, I would never do that because anyway, uh, not that I'm humble. It's just, man, I'm ugly. Uh, who cares what I look like? Hope they just read the book. But anyway, they did not do that in New Testament times. Actually, they didn't do that in the Bible times for the most part. Rarely do you find a book, especially in the Old Testament, where whoever wrote it said, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm writing this book. Like Samuel in the Old Testament. Samuel, we don't even know if Samuel wrote for Samuel. There's parts of Samuel Samuel couldn't have written because he was dead. We believe Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy, but he never says, hi, I'm Moses. I'm writing this down. Never said Moses's name is never even mentioned in Genesis. And so that is also true with many books in the New Testament. And that's also true of, of Acts. Uh, Luke doesn't say Luke's name is in the book. Or in the New Testament only three times. So, but we say Luke wrote the book of Acts. Uh, so that's point number one. Who is the author? It's Dr. Luke, I call him. Why do I call him Dr. Luke? Because he was a physician, a medical doctor. Uh, we know this from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Luke was an associate. At some point in Paul's ministry, he connected with Luke and got to know him. Luke was not an eyewitness. He wasn't a first-generation believer who got to hang out with Jesus. Luke was not an apostle. So we got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if I were to ask you which ones were apostles who wrote the Gospels, it's only two, right? It's Matthew and John. And Mark and Luke were not apostles, but they wrote Gospels anyway. And Luke was like a second-generation believer. And providentially, uh, Luke connected with Paul. And Luke was a believer, a man of integrity, uh, had a heart to support Paul in the ministry. And so Luke ended up being a partner in ministry and a helper to the Apostle Paul during the course of Luke's ministry. And there were many who actually partnered with Paul and then turned on him or abandoned him, which hurt him terribly. Luke was not one of those. He was faithful to the end. Faithful to the end. Luke just, uh, and he was also called a physician. So uh, that's Colossians 4.14. The apostle Paul at the end of his book says, Luke, the get this, not just a physician, but the beloved physician. The beloved physician. He just, he loved Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, sends his greeting. So there's an example where Luke is actually with Paul on a missionary trip. The other two times where Luke is mentioned is 2 Timothy 4.11. That's kind of at the very end of Paul's life, late 60s A.D. 
And he says, only Luke is with me. He even mentions people who have abandoned him and turned on him. Only Luke is with me. Timothy, pick up Mark, John Mark. Bring him with you. He's useful to me. And then Philemon 124, uh, Paul says, as do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. So just beautiful little descriptions that Paul gives us. Just enough to kind of get the sense of this very faithful helper of the Apostle Paul and went on missionary journeys. So even though Luke's name is not mentioned, we're going to see Luke actually later on in the book of Acts chapter 16 and following where it is very apparent that Luke is writing firsthand and he's with the Apostle Paul some of these trips. Uh, So Luke is the author of this book, Dr. Luke. Uh, Being a physician, probably in his day, that means he was literate. People, Uh, he was probably trained and had schooling. He had a craft or a profession, and that was a doctor. Not all doctors in that day, 2,000 years ago, were good. Some of them were, many of them actually were quacks and phony, like there are today, leading people astray, asking for their money, not providing a real solution or diagnosis or healing whatsoever. So many times people were kind of skeptical of people who called themselves medical doctors. But Luke was legit. He was the beloved physician. He was a real doctor. He has a logical mind. He's analytical. You see that in his writings in the Greek that he uses in the New Testament with both of his books. So he was trained. He was literate. He was uh, eminently qualified to write this book as a historian. Does a beautiful job. So God knew what he was doing when he chose Luke to write the history of the early church. Dr. Luke, well qualified, in addition to being carried along by the Holy Spirit to ensure that We have in the book of Acts exactly what God wanted us to do. A little more about Luke. He probably was not a Jew, but maybe a Gentile, wasn't an apostle. So that's Luke, the Gentile physician. Uh, If Luke's name is not in the book of Luke, how do we know that he wrote the book? Uh, There is some internal evidence that we can conclude that from. We'll talk about that later, especially when we get to Acts 16. But for now, suffice it to say that the early church gives unanimous testimony that Luke was the author of the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Just a little bit of information. There is a fragment that we have of a papyrus that's in existence that dates to A.D. 170. It exists today, A.D. 170. That is amazing. That is only 70, 80 years after John the Apostle died and wrote his book of Revelation. It's called the Miratorian Fragment a believer, and he attested and even wrote in there that Luke wrote Acts. It's one of our earliest testimonies. And then unanimously, all the early church fathers who left us their writings, and we have manuscript evidence of their testimony across the board from Irenaeus all the way up, who was like 150 uh, A.D., all the way up to the 2nd and 3rd century. It's, it's all consistent that all the early church fathers who are very cl- much closer to Bible times than we are, So they're better, more reliable witnesses. And we even have some of their writings intact today. All testify 100% that Luke, the partner of Paul, wrote the book of Acts. That's never been questioned. There is so much evidence I can give you. and It's piles high, but we don't need to. It's um, pretty much settled and consistent with the New Testament internal evidence as well. So Luke wrote this book. Uh, Who's the audience? Number two, well, that's Theophilus. We already saw that. This royal, maybe, uh, Roman official who was already saved or asking questions about the faith, wanted to hear more from Luke. 
So Luke obliges and writes the book. The audience is immediately Theophilus, but by God's design, really the audience is anybody that was willing to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Jesus would say that often. That's also repeated in the book of Revelation. And so um, that's why I put the audience is immediately historically Theophilus, but beyond that, people who lived during the day of Theophilus and also the early church in the days of Theophilus and beyond that for the generations yet to come. And so God's ultimate intention was to preserve the book of Acts for his people for all time till he returns to the church. And so the church has had this amazing book of Acts for 2,000 years. Our legacy, our history, our, the origin of how we came to be has been meticulously preserved supernaturally by God. That is awesome. That is awesome. We know our origin. We know our history. We know how it started. We know where we come from. The truth has been preserved. An amazing encouragement. There are those who, after 25 years, they go back to their alma mater, their high school, for whatever reason. I don't know why anybody would do that. But anyway, and they can actually go back to their high school because it still exists. Do you know that there are some people who graduated from a high school and 25 years later their high school doesn't exist anymore? That's kind of sad. It's like you've lost a piece of your life. Just an example, but God has preserved our history for it. It's, it's awesome. It's also unique that Christianity can do that. We know that we have an inspired account of how the church began, how it spread, how we got here. That is not true of any other religion that I could think of in terms of their origin. You think about Islam, the largest religion in the world that started in the 600s A.D. There's a lot of question and discrepancy and missing components to its origin and its history and how it developed. It's sketchy. And I'd say that was true of any religion, how Buddhism start and started and on and on. Not so with Christianity. We have God's definitive, authoritative record, and we're going to see that as we go through it. Uh, so the audience is you. There's a wonderful verse in the book of Acts from Peter. We're going to see it where he basically makes that promise. Not only is this wonderful promise from God and this word from God for the people who are assembled here today, but for you and for all of your descendants. Those who are far off. So, well, when was this book written? That's number three. Uh, it was written from Rome during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. We believe that he was imprisoned at least two times in Rome. The first imprisonment is actually described at the end of the book of Acts, that's where it's going to end, actually. The book of Acts ends rather abruptly, where Paul ends up on a ship. He, he's in prison. He ends up in Rome. He is confined. He's probably chained. He has some house arrest or freedom. He's allowed to see visitors and have friends. He's allowed to preach the gospel. But he's in prison as the book ends. It's in Rome. It's not really negative when it ends, but it does end abruptly. It's like, wow, that's... Kind of, where's the next page? Where's Acts 29? Acts 20, wait, that's the name of a church movement. No, just so you know, I need to clarify this. There are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, not 29. Not Acts 29. But uh, the fact that the book of Acts just kind of ends abruptly is indicative of many things, but that was the first Roman imprisonment. Paul's going to end up getting arrested again a little later, probably like five years later, and he ends up getting executed with his head probably chopped off under the persecution of Nero between 64 and 67 A.D. But uh, Paul probably wrote, I mean, uh, Luke probably wrote this during Paul's first imprisonment about that time. Uh, so the date would be, actually I'm going to change this to 61 to 62 A.D. Put 60, because Luke was probably written about A.D. 60. So Luke was written first, 
than Acts. Uh, the purpose of the book. Uh, I put three, but there's about 72 purposes to the book. They are inexhaustible. I could go on and on, but just three primary ones. I want to look at these. What is the purpose of the book of Acts uh, in God's wisdom? To show how Jesus' promises were fulfilled. And it does explicitly. As a matter of fact, the way the, the gospel story ends, it's, it's tragic. Before the uh, the resurrection and ascension, it's like Jesus is teaching, and then all of a sudden, I mean, he, they're praising him as Hosanna in the high. They welcome him to Jerusalem, Holy Week, on either Palm Sunday or Palm Monday, the entire city in Jerusalem, hailing him as the Messiah, waving branches, and within days, they're shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. What a fickle mob within less than a week. And then Jesus is crucified. He's executed. He did nothing wrong. So there seems to be somewhat of an abrupt ending to the life of Jesus where, at least from the apostles' point of view at the time that he was arrested and executed, the 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 11 apostles are thinking, wait a minute, this can't happen. Things haven't been completed yet. Jesus made all these promises for three and a half years and they haven't come to fruition. The kingdom is not here. The Romans haven't been overthrown. The Old Testament promises haven't been fulfilled. He has been executed. He's in the grave. We are scattered. We are abandoned. That's what they were thinking. But they were right in thinking that much has not been fulfilled or accomplished yet. That Jesus explicitly promised. Well, Jesus is the God-man. He never sins. He is incarnate truth. Whatever he says always happens and comes to fruition. So when Jesus makes a promise, it indeed will happen. And so the book of Acts for 28 chapters actually lays that out. Many of the promises that Christ made are indeed fulfilled. As a matter of fact, some are being fulfilled even today. One of those is in John 10:16. You don't have to look at it, but it's about the middle of Jesus' ministry, his three-and-a-half-year ministry teaching, preaching publicly, having an interchange with the Jews. Many of his critics are in the audience and they're pegging him with, they're trying to stump him and embarrass him, shame him, discredit him publicly. And then he gets some private time uh, with his disciples. But anyway, as he's teaching publicly to his disciples, which is a big crowd of people, not just the 12 apostles, but his disciples. So, Crowds and crowds of people, dozens and dozens of people. And he's teaching them, the Jews. But he also makes this amazing promise that many times just goes totally unnoticed in the narrative. And that's in John 10, 16. Where he says, I have other sheep too, you know. Other sheep, what do you mean? Well, I have followers, not now, but in the future, who are not Jewish. They're not Israelites. They're, they're not here now. They are nowhere to be seen. As a matter of fact, they're not even a part of the purview of my public ministry for the entire three and a half years because in Matthew 15, 24, when Jesus, rarely did Jesus go outside the confines of Palestine when he preached and did ministry for three years. I mean, Israel is very small and Jesus confined himself to only the savior of the world confined his itinerary to that little small country of Israel. And only occasionally, very rarely did he leave Israel. And on one occasion in Matthew 15, he did. He went out to the outskirts of what we know today is Lebanon, right on the coast, just above Israel, right next to Syria, which is on the map of the world news today. And 
went out to Tyre and Sidon, two little cities in Lebanon, to, to get away from the crowds and to take a break and uh, to rest and be refreshed by God. Rarely did he do that. But when he was in Tyre, Matthew fifteen twenty four says that a Canaanite woman came after him, pursued him, pleading with him, begging for blessing, for ministry from Jesus, the Messiah. And as you first read it, at first blush, you're thinking, wow, Jesus' response was not very nice. First, he said, no, I can't. She was a Canaanite Syrophoenician woman in the town of Tyre. And he basically said, no, I can't. Here's what Jesus said. I was sent. The reason I can't help you, lady, you Canaanite lady, is because I was sent by the Father only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is a startling statement. Wow. Jesus, why are you so limited and myopic? Don't you love the rest of the world? Don't you love Gentiles? But that's a purpose statement that Jesus made. No, he's very focused. There is a purpose. God loves the world. He loves Gentiles. He loves non-Jews. But God said it's got to start somewhere. It's got to start at home base in Israel, in Jerusalem, with the Jews, and Rivers of blessing will flow out to the rest of the world from there at the appropriate time. During Jesus' ministry was not the appropriate time. That's why he said, I was sent only to the lost house or the sheep that are of Israel. And so, and this lady is persistent. So Jesus just told her, don't she said, but don't dogs even deserve scraps from the table? She called herself a dog because that's how Jews viewed Gentiles. God didn't view them that way, but many times prejudiced Jews did. They're unclean. Jesus was impressed by her response and her faith and her persistence. And so he ministered to that woman. Now, the reason I cite that verse is because that seems to be in contradiction to John ten sixteen, where Jesus said publicly, you know what? Right for now, I'm ministering to the Jews. But in the future, there is a time coming where I have more sheep. They're not Jews. They're not of the house of Israel. They're outside the house of Israel. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about Gentiles. I have Gentile sheep. When they hear my voice, they will know the voice of the shepherd. They will come to me and I will unite Jew and Gentile in one. That was a prediction of the Lord Jesus Christ of the coming church, the body of Christ made up of Jew and Gentile. That was one of the only times that he ever said that in the gospels and during the course of his public ministry that we know of. And so in John ten sixteen, that obscure prophecy and promise is fulfilled to a T in the book of Acts. That's what the entire book of Acts is about. That's just one amazing promise. Uh, a couple others there to show the fulfilled promises. I put John 14, 12. That's when he's talking to Philip uh, about how he's going to ascend back into heaven. He did that. And then Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, and this is the end of his ministry now. He said that uh, he would... I will build my church. I will future. T- I'm going to build my church. Church doesn't exist yet. I'm going to build it. I'm going to start the church, build it, continue to build it. Present tense. And the gates of Hades, Satan himself, all of his forces, eternal hell is not going to stop the growth and the continuity of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's and Jesus has fulfilled that promise. It's been the church has been going on continuously since he started it at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. That's amazing. 
And that's important for us, too, because there are religions and people that will tell us, well, you know, the church started, but then it stopped. It stalled and kind of went into oblivion and non-existence. And so then God had to start all over again and restore it. So God sent a new prophet. His name was Joseph Smith in 1830 to start the church again because it went down the tubes. That's really what they believe. And we said, no, Jesus said that the church would go on forever. That's the promise of Matthew 16, 18. But we see a very specific fulfillment of the promise of how Jesus would build his church. He would build it on a specific day, a holy day, Pentecost, with specific people, his trained, commissioned apostles on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then it would explode, expand and grow, take over Jerusalem, all of Judea, all of Israel to the rest of the then known world. Absolutely amazing. And Luke recounts that in detail as a historian. All the while, we are to keep in mind Matthew 16, 18. This is awesome. Jesus is fulfilling his promise. Did you know that Jesus is still building the church today? Every time somebody hears the gospel and a sinner gets saved, that is a fulfillment of Matthew 16, 18. Jesus continues to grow his church. If you are a Christian, you are a precious stone in the temple that God calls his spiritual church. That's what Peter says in his epistle. It's awesome. God continues to build his church. He's building his church, which is his precious bride, because Jesus is going to marry the church in the future yet to come. We, the church, are his bride, along with all saved saints throughout all time. Jesus is excited about his wedding day, and it's going to be perfect. And we are a part of it. So that's awesome. Uh, So that's what the book of Acts does. Uh, Also be, through God, through Luke, the book of Acts, uh, one of the purposes is to show the growth of the church and kind of already touched that. And we're going to see practical growth. We're going to see growth numerically. There's a big debate going on on the Internet right now. I don't know if you're aware of it in the evangelical world and on blogs and pastors are arguing back and forth and fighting each other and all this stuff. And I'm just reading it on the sidelines saying, hmm, this is interesting. And the battle, or at least one of the battles right now, is uh, large churches versus small churches. And uh, one pastor was arguing that small churches are better, they're more spiritual, they're more intimate, they're, and they're more like the New Testament. That also kind of goes along with the house church movement that kind of started in really here in America in about the 1950s and then just took off in the 1970s. And now it's just a major philosophy about church life uh, here in America and around the world that... The real, true, spiritual, New Testament, apostolic church is a house church. A small, cozy, intimate, informal church, just like they did in the New Testament. Because if you read the New Testament, you can see clearly, this is what they argue. You can see clearly that all the churches were small and they're in houses and they don't have formality. They don't have professionals. They don't have elders. They don't have, and on and on they go. There were, and the emphasis is on small and intimate. I'm thinking, wait, what? Did you, did you read the book of Acts where the first church was? The first church didn't even start small. As a startup, we are familiar with startups here in this area. This was the first startup. Before the church even started, there's 120 believers assembled together waiting on God's Holy Spirit. The 12 apostles... And the women and other believers. 120. That's the adults. They probably had children as well in children's church. So we got like 200 people. We got the size of a GBF here. 
And the Holy Spirit of God came on Acts chapter 2, and God started the church with 120 people. And then there were crowds that, because it was the feast season, there's over a million people in Jerusalem when this happened. That was God's plan. That was God's providence. And so Peter had a, a waiting audience. And so Peter starts preaching the gospel to these thousands and thousands of people who are looking on, who are Jews, God-fearers, informed by the Old Testament, knew that a Messiah was coming. And Peter takes advantage of that, preaches, and on the first Day of the church plant, over 3,000 believed, 3,000 adults, not counting children. And they baptized them all. How in the world do you baptize 3,000 people? I figured it out. I went through the statistics. You can do it in two hours in Jerusalem by the Jordan River. Easily. 3,000. And they did. It said 3,000 believed that day. They added them to the church. Peter keeps preaching. The apostles keep preaching shortly thereafter. And it says that 5,000 more were added to the church. This is one church, the church of So 5,000, and it said men only. So that's not counting the women. There are too many to count. Okay, let's simplify. Let's count just the guys, the men. And then that way you can times two there. You get 10,000. Plus, We're not going to count the children because they're in children's church. So that's uh, 10,000 plus the children. And in Jerusalem at that time, your average adult had like 4.7 children. So you're up 20,000 people. Plus the three, that's 23,000 plus 123,120 people in the first church in the first two weeks. Now, whose living room are they going to fit in? Anyway, that, that is a mega church. And that was the first church of Jerusalem. So that's awesome. And for some reason, Luke is very exacting about his numbers. He cared about numbers. Because I think he wanted to, well, record accurate history, but also to encourage us and show how Quickly, God built his church in terms of just sheer numbers of people that responded. There were many critics, but many responded as well. So the growth of the church, and then finally the purpose, uh, very important. This is a theological purpose throughout the book of Acts. To show the transition. From the time of, well, God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham was a pagan, and then God turned him into a Jew. He became the first Jew. I'm going to do something special through you, Abraham. Didn't happen until 600 years later when Moses came along. And then God created the nation of Israel under Moses' leadership. And then they had like 2 million plus people in their nation. Gave them the land, gave them the law. And so for the next 1400 B.C. till the time of Jesus, for 1400 years, God was working primarily through Moses, the Jews, Israel, the law, not dealing with the rest of the world directly, but through the conduit of the nation of Israel. Always with the plan to someday spring out to the rest of the world in God's appropriate time. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first. That's chronologically. And then also to the Greek. To the Jew first. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John but also to the Greek, the book of Acts. That was God's plan. And so when the gospel of Christ came, Jesus created the church in Acts chapter 2. Now the body of Christ that exists as an entity before God for the first time in the history of the world, this new spiritual entity called the church that was primarily spiritual and not physical. It included the physical, but not primarily. There's a spiritual relationship. You've got this new entity and you've got, and by the way, the first Christians were Jewish. We forget that. 
the first Christians were Jewish. The first church was an ethnic church. It was the Jerusalem church. It was all Jews. To later in the book of Acts where Gentiles start getting saved. And God is very deliberate in training his people, and especially those Jews that became Christians, that this isn't Jewishness anymore. There's something unique and distinct and uh, general about what God is doing as he's reaching the rest of the world. And so there are some very specific lessons that we're going to see that God taught his apostles about this transition. We've got to move from Judaism to Christianity because God so loved the world. It's not God so loved Israel. He did love Israel, but he loves beyond Israel, the world. And so uh, looking forward to some of that. I put Acts chapter 10. We'll get to that later. And that's a very important lesson that God had to teach uh, Peter, the apostle. who had He was a Jew, a fastidious Jew in the way he was raised. He never ate anything unclean, abided by the law of Moses. He was trained that way. And even after he got saved and became a Christian, he was still abstaining from foods that Jesus had declared clean. And God had to give him a wake-up call and a lesson. And he did successfully. Well, with that, some unique features about the gospel, I mean, uh, the book of Luke, I'll give you a couple of those to close with. And then next week, our uh, guest Sam will be preaching. And then week after that, we'll just pick back up with um, the book of Acts, which is appropriate at the time of Easter, how we're going to intersect with Pentecost at the time of Easter and the resurrection thematically, just providentially worked that out. Just a couple of features that are unique about the book of Acts. I like the book of Acts because of its biblical simplicity. You can, how do you do church? Just real simple. It's all right there in the book of Acts. This, the book of Acts is our model of how to do church today. Many church growth books, many churches on ecclesiology being written today and for several decades are trying to invent new ways to do church. When, no, let's just go back to the Bible. It's right here. Let's do church the way they did in the book of Acts. So the biblical simplicity is unique to the gospel of, I mean, uh, the book of Acts. Um, uh, unique features also. If we didn't have the book of Acts and its history, the 13 epistles of Paul would be very confusing, and we don't know where Paul's going, what he was doing, what his missionary trips were, how many. Uh, but Luke's background puts it all in a historical context and ties it all together beautifully. So that's one of the practical benefits of the book of Acts, giving context to Paul's very complicated ministry. Another unique thing about the book of Acts is it mentions over 80 geographical locations accurately, over 80 Here's a guy who was there, traveled, knew about it, went, eyewitness, writing it down, getting it correct. Really. Look up, uh, well, don't do this, but Alma chapter 7, verse 10 in the Book of Mormon is a supposed prophecy about the coming Messiah, 300 B.C., in the Book of Mormon. And it says, behold, the child will be born. He will be born in the city of Jerusalem. That's what it says. Oops. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bible never makes that mistake. Practical one on geography. Um, the book of Acts mentions over 100 people by name. Many of these people, you can go to an Encyclopedia Britannica or Encyclopedia Americana like I have done. All these names, and these guys are in there. Roman guys and Herod Antipas and uh, on and on. And it, the Bible is consistent, accurate. Luke got it right. Uh, unique feature, great precision in citing cities, locations, titles by name. Uh, the book of Acts includes 24 messages or sermons or speeches. Uh, the book of Acts is unique in chapter 20, verse 35, where it has the only quote that we know of from Jesus outside the Gospels before he died. And that was when the Apostle Paul said, 
Remember the Lord Jesus when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. A wonderful truth. Uh, And then finally, I'll just give you one more. In Acts chapter 6, we see the development of the office of deacon. It wasn't formal. It just kind of sprung into existence out of necessity. And God created this spiritual office that continues to this day. Elders and deacons. Uh, Passionate evangelism all throughout the book of Acts. uh, Incredibly encouraging and motivating for us. Uh, Great contentment of the poor, persecuted early church. Incredibly content in the relationship with Christ. Incredibly content in their relations and love for one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Incredibly content uh, despite their lack of resources and, and, and despite the fact they were many times facing utter persecution. Even many would die. And we see that even to this day in certain parts of the world where Christians are still being persecuted to the point of death. So I'm looking forward our study on the book of Acts together. It's going to be a great journey. We're going to learn a lot, and God's going to encourage and feed our souls and motivate us, hopefully, to do great things on His behalf. With that, let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the Lord's Day. We're thankful for the privilege to come and meet with the saints, to be encouraged by other believers, to worship You through song, to study your word together. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher, enlighten our understanding so that we can grasp its truth. And now, Holy Spirit, help us to apply biblical truth to our life in a practical way. God, we look forward to what we're going to learn from the book of Acts, and I do pray that you would help GBF conform to the biblical pattern of what a church is to be, what a Christian is to be, and what ministry is to be like. And we ask that you would do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.